Well, uh, I need to begin with a confession. I went back to my room last night. I was very lonely. <laughs> and I picked up the phone in a moment of weakness. And there was a very, very sexy woman's voice at the other end. And I said, hi, Marlene, how are our children? And so uh, I just need to acknowledge that uh, before I get started. You know, I, I don't know, maybe in one of the sessions, uh, we thanked John and Debbie and the Trent Vineyard, but uh, I think we, it's appropriate to say thank you for all your hospitality. And... Um, And just all the folks who are ministering here from the Trent Vineyard, I'm sure there are others from other, other vineyard churches, but it really is extraordinary hospitality, and it takes enormous work to pull something like this off and a huge team. And so uh, as you are interacting with the team here, just say thank you, because it really is a lot of work. So thank you. We really appreciate it. Um, all right, uh, if, again, if you have a phone, just um, turn to Revelation chapter 5. We'll be looking at that in just a moment. Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to ask the Lord's presence. Lord, we again acknowledge before you that apart from you we can do nothing. God, there won't be any lasting fruit, and there won't be any change in anyone, there won't be any calls issued, uh, there won't be any uh, fresh vision, there won't be any dangerous dreams, uh, God, unless you, unless you speak. So I'm asking you this morning to speak, and God, uh, call us again. Uh, call us again. I pray for each of you, and whatever you've carried in here this morning, that uh, you might release anxieties, that you might release uh, just all the clutter, release that uh, to the foot of the cross, and ask the Lord, God, make me open, uh, help me to hear what you have for me today, in Jesus' name, amen. So, my favorite subject in school uh, uh, was always history. And uh, I know that some of you had history taught by uh, folks who should not have been allowed to be around children, uh, that the way that you were taught history was just a sort of random series of dates and names and facts, and so folks grow up thinking that they hate history. But to hate history, of course, is to hate life, because history is just... Uh, the reading of life, and it's a story of real human beings and how they grappled with the issues that were facing them in their day. I was a history major uh, at, in college, uh, along with being a comparative religion major, and uh, for the last 35 years, on my nightstand, along with some other book, is always a history book. 
And one of the things that I've discovered about reading history is that uh, there are, of course, different approaches to understanding the meaning of history. And some people write history as if it is the story of great men and women and their accomplishments. And so we read uh, uh, the story of Churchill or Washington or, or your greatest and wisest King George III. And, uh, and that's the approach that uh, most folks my age were taught when we took history back in elementary school. For many years, especially when I was in college, uh, there was a, a trend towards dismissing the personal accomplishments of great women and men, and uh, history began to be uh, taught as uh, the impact of impersonal forces upon our world and lives. And so it was the impact of geography and plagues and uh, class warfare between those who produced and those who owned capital. And then you have folks like Professor Arnold Toynbee who said, essentially history is just cyclical. Uh, we see great powers rise, Greek or Rome or, or Britain or Spain or the U.S., but the thing that made the powers great uh, begins to be forgotten, it begins to be buried, and the great power starts to overreach. They get involved in foreign adventures and wars, and in order to sustain their overreaching, they overtax their local populations, and they begin to experience global top competition from other rising powers, and decadence and sloth uh, eat away the fabric of the society and the great power falls. And so what Toynbee said was that history is essentially cyclical, the rise and fall of great powers. In the 19th century, uh, history was understood by the optimists as the steady progress upward of uh, the human race. And uh, the optimists were in charge of the churches, and the optimists were in charge of the universities. And so they talked about uh, the growing universal brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God, and uh, that we'll all live together peacefully in one wonderful global village. A Christian magazine in the United States picked up the theme of this liberal optimism and they named the 20th century the Christian century uh, because there was a notion that in the 20th century all the world would become Christianized. And then we experienced World War I and World War II and a dozen holocausts. And people are far more pessimistic today as we read history in the 21st century. And many people have uh, a adopted the, the line of Hegel which says the only thing that history teaches us is that history teaches us nothing. 
People say there's no meaning in history, there's no rhyme or reason, it's all random, we're not going anywhere, we're not learning anything, it has no purpose, it has no goal, and that's what lots of postmoderns believe, and that's what many people in our churches believe, as we're influenced by these currents of culture, we're not going anywhere, we're not accomplishing anything, Interestingly, the Bible has a very different view of history. And here's what we read in Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Let's just pause there. The scroll is the scroll that explains the meaning of history. Uh, It's sealed to human investigation, the Apostle John writes. We are totally in the dark about what's going on, why things are happening the way they're happening. And we won't get any real light on what's happening in the world by listening to the politicians. And we're not going to get any real light by listening to the pundits on television who give you instant opinions about everything 24 hours a day. We're not going to discover the ultimate meaning of history from listening to the philosophers or the sociologists. John tells us there's only one who is able to open the scroll of history and explain the meaning of what's happening in the world and what's been happening. And we read this in Revelation 5, verses 5 and 6. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. John, of course, is talking about Jesus, and he calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering Messiah who comes from the Jewish tribe of Judah and traces his lineage back to the great King David. But he's a lion who triumphed by becoming a sacrificial lamb, dying for the sins of the world. And history cannot be understood unless it's looked through the lens of the incarnation and redemption of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll just be in the dark about what is going on unless you look at everything through the lens of Christ, what Christ accomplished. You see... The history of redemption, how God is working in the world to rescue the cosmos. That's the thread that runs through all of human history, or even better. All of human history is just a thread woven into the larger tapestry of God's grand plan of redemption. To rescue the entire cosmos and to repair all things from the fall. And if you again were African-American, you'd be on your feet going, Amen and Amen. Praise God. There is a plan. There is a purpose. But I understand that you dial emotion way down here. (laughs) 
So only Christ can open the scroll because he's triumphed at the cross. We read in Revelation 5, 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And uh, one of the things we discover as Christ opens the scroll is the source of all of our challenges. Why are we facing so many challenges in our world? And why are we facing so many challenges in the church? Why are things so difficult? And one of the things we discover as Christ opens the scroll, and we see it in the book of Revelation, is how utterly superficial most people's explanations are regarding the essential challenge we face. And the challenge we face in the church and humanity. Jesus tells us what is going on in the world. What's the ultimate source of our problems. And he tells us this repeatedly in the Gospels. But we don't listen. Jesus says in Luke 11 verse 21 and 22. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house. His possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. And so Jesus is giving his account of what's going on in the world. And he says, when a strong man is armed, he guards his house. And when he does so, his possessions are safe. And uh, that's Christ's way of describing what's going on in the world. The strong man, of course, is Satan. And he is, the world is uh, portrayed as being like a large mansion, a large house. And uh, the strong man is armed. And his possessions are people who are living under the domination of this strong man. Their philosophy of life, what they value, what they consider uh, important, how they think about things. It's all dominated by the strong man. And they can't escape control. And they don't even know that they're part of the strong man's possessions. But the Lord says in verse 22, But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Someone stronger is Jesus' way of describing himself. He takes away the armor that the strong man trusted in. And he frees people. He, he takes the people who were kept safe in the strong man's house and he liberates us. And that's his work in the world. Jesus came to deal with the strong man who's armed. He came to defeat the devil who keeps people under lock and key. And this is not just Jesus' teaching. It runs throughout Scripture. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, if you want to understand what's going on in the world, why all the violence, why all the confusion, why all the family breakdowns, and on and on, you have to see that human beings are following a path that has been grooved out to us for us by the devil. And Jesus opens a scroll. He discloses the source of the world's problem. It lies in Satan and uh, the wickedness that he sows that keeps us trapped 
There are forces that beat us down that are too strong for us. And Jesus not only gives us the source of the problem, he also gives us the goal of God in human history. What is God up to? What's the ultimate purpose? And Jesus tells us the goal of God's purpose and the meaning of history is that history is not just a meaningless sequence of events with no purpose, with no goal, with no telos. It's not cyclical, as Toynbee said. The rise of one nature, nation and the fall of another. Uh, history is linear. It's going somewhere. And where are we going? Where is the world headed? Are we headed toward nuclear holocaust? To just being blasted away by a comet or a meteor that's just going to destroy life on planet Earth and then will restore, uh, be restored to the time of the planktons? Is that it? Here's where history is headed. Revelation 11 verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Praise the Lord. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. One day, uh, we're going to see the world uh, the way it will look when God runs things. That's what the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ means. It's, according to Tom Wright, the way the world looks when God runs things. That's what we're talking about by the kingdom of God. What, what do things look like when God's in charge? How would God do it? And we're all going to live in the world the way God does it. And the world's going to look very different. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 1. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasures, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. God's going to sum up everything under Christ. You know that in Greek math, they used to add up, right? So they had the line at the top of the column of the numbers, and then the sum was above the line. We add and we put the sum below the line. They put the sum above the line to sum up everything. What is the sum of all things? Christ. Christ ruling over all. That's what we're one day going to see. And so... Uh, Let's just talk about history and the triumph of God, what it is that we're participating in. I mean, let's get the big picture. You know, what have we been swept into? We all have our churches and we all have our individual lives and we're all, you know, many of us are raising families and we're trying to do our best, but we need to see that we're part of a grand project. You know the old uh, story about a person who came by and walked up to a construction site and one of the builder, he was asking one of the guys uh, who was building, what are you doing? And he said, I'm laying brick. And he talked to another guy and he said, I am building a grand cathedral for the worship of Jesus Christ. There's something that is empowering and envisioning when you're part of something way bigger than just, well, I'm trying as best as I can 
to do children's ministry. Yes, that is important, but it's part of something way bigger. So what is the grand purpose and plan of God? And I'm indebted to the great English scholar John Stott and his brilliant book. If there's one book that I, could recommend, that I would love to see every pastor read, it is The Cross of Christ by John Stott. It is just wonderful, just great. How many of you who are English, whose heritage this is, who should be ashamed of yourself if you haven't read it? <laughs> I won't ask for you to raise your hands after that ridiculous buildup. Uh, if you haven't read The Cross of Christ, download it on your Kindle or pick up a copy of it. Uh, but he talks about history being laid out in four stages. Actually, he says five. I'm just going to give you four. Number one, triumph predicted. Triumph predicted. The first prediction of Christ's triumph over Satan is given in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God's judgment on the serpent in Genesis 3.15, where the Lord, this is the proto-evangelum, it's, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike her heel. The woman's offspring is the Messiah. And it's predicted way back the moment uh, our first parents fell way back in the garden. It was predicted that the offspring of the woman, Jesus of Nazareth, would crush the head of Satan. And uh, Genesis 3.15 says that when Messiah crushes the head of the serpent, he himself will be wounded. He'll be bitten in the heel. And God communicated hope. This is what God always does in our darkest moments. God spoke a word of hope, a word of redemption. Uh, No matter how far you've fallen, And how many times you've fallen off the horse. God always provides a word of hope. A word of redemption. There's a way out for you. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's not over. God always wants us to be people of hope. And so history, God says right from the beginning, is not going to be a meaningless series of random events. It's not just going to be an endless string of tragedies. It's not going to be this cyclical pattern of rise and fall. We're not just in the dark and in the fog about what the heck is going on around here. Back in the Garden of Eden, God predicted triumph over our great enemy. And then in the second stage, we see triumph begun. Triumph begun. And it's found in the Incarnation and in the ministry of Jesus. In the Gospels, we see the forces of Satan progressively push back. They're on the defensive. They know it. That's why Satan stirred up Herod to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem, because there was a threat to his house, and and he knew that, that there was somebody coming who was going to strip away his armor and begin to pull out uh, his possessions from the mansion. And Satan tries to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, and he stirs up opposition against him. Uh, But Jesus keeps pushing darkness back through deliverances, through healings, through teaching. He's pushing the kingdom of darkness back. 
triumph was begun in the life and ministry of Jesus. The darkness is receding and the light of the world has come. And then most importantly, in the third and decisive stage, the triumph is achieved at the cross. Uh, The triumph is achieved. The cross is the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. The misery and bondage brought into the world as we cooperated with the serpent is triumphed over at the cross. And probably the clearest and most important text regarding the triumph of the cross is Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15, where we read this. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God not only cancels out your disobedience, God destroys the documents upon which the record of your disobedience was written. There is no record of your failure before the heavenly court. In other words, when John and Debbie Wright appear before the judge, And uh, God the judge says to the clerk in the heavenly court, uh, read me the record of John and Debbie's sins. The clerk will say, I'm sorry, there is no record. And the backup has been utterly destroyed. No record, no backup, no file. Everything's been deleted and it can't be recovered. Paul goes on and explains how the triumph was achieved. He said, not only were your sins blotted out, they were nailed to the cross. I love that. Your sins are nailed to the cross. Do you think about that? That your sin, all the things you're ashamed of, all your failures, all the things you should have done, Oh, I could have been wiser. I made a mistake here. I made a wrong turn there. I wonder if this decision, you know, maybe we shouldn't have made that decision. I didn't take enough counsel. I didn't pray enough, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Paul goes on and he explains how the triumph was achieved. He says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In the ancient world, when a prisoner was crucified, the Roman government, of course, nailed the charges above their heads, right? And so when Jesus was crucified on the cross, the charges uh, that uh, brought about his crucifixion were nailed over his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews. And... uh, Paul is saying that's not all that's nailed over the head of Jesus, right? That over the head of Jesus is not just the charge against him. Over the head of Jesus is all the charges against us. Over the head of Jesus, as we bow, it's pornography user and gossip, slanderer, and... uh, masturbator. Racist. Ungrateful. Cheater. 
liar, self-pity, proud, angry, greedy, self-centered, lover of money, hater of God, everything that we've done. You know, when I kneel before the cross and I think of that over his head, if there's anything that melts my heart, it's that he was willing to carry all of it and so identify with my sins that he said, you label me with the sins of rich and the sins of each of you. The cross is where my sins were nailed. And then here's the fourth stage. Triumph announced and extended. Have you wondered why, Jesus, why God didn't just destroy Satan at the cross? Why not end it all? One reason may be that now Satan has to watch as the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He has to stand back through all of history and watch his house being plundered. And he has to watch as his house is being plundered, not by angels, but by weak and insignificant men and women who one by one go into his house with all of our problems and all of our confusion, these weak, insignificant nothings, these worms that he would call us, who come into his house and take woman and man and child into the kingdom of our Lord. And the ridiculous methods by which that's done, as the scroll is unfolded, and the lion of the tribe of Judah roars. He entrusts to us the message of salvation. And so Satan has to stand back and watch as one woman shares with another woman over the lunch table what Jesus could do for her. And his kingdom is plundered. And one man at a job site explains to his buddy the difference Jesus would make in his family. And as we go out into the streets and we feed people and as we pray for the sick and as we cast out demons and uh, as we provide services to immigrants and as we help people find jobs in the name of Jesus, always in the name of Jesus, Satan watches his kingdom get plundered. The real story of history is of ordinary men and women plundering the house of Satan. The story of history is of missionaries going out around the world, people who are not terribly significant in the eyes of the world, people that the world doesn't take notice of, folks going out around the world sharing good news about Jesus. The victory is announced and extended not only with words, but with deeds. As we form communities of resistance, alternative communities. So let's talk about visionary leadership as we wrap up these three days. How is it that this victory is going to be extended? What is our calling as leaders and pastors? How is the victory going to be extended in England? 
and in Scotland, and in Wales, and in Ireland, and in Northern Ireland, and in the Nordic countries, and in Amsterdam, and in the United States, or wherever you are coming from. And uh, some of you heard me say this at the Hub, but uh, Leslie Newbegin is a great missionary to India. Back in the 1930s, he went out uh, to India and then returned to England in the 1970s. The England that he came back to uh, was shockingly different than the England that he left. He found the church in significant decline. He found the church hemorrhaging people. He found Christian influence on society, on laws, on the way people think, were thinking in significant retreat. He found the elite institutions really hostile to Christian values. That wasn't the England that he left in the 30s, but it was the England that he returned to in the 70s and the 80s. And he uh, wrote about this over and over again uh, as he looked at the universities and read the newspapers and looked at media and all of that. Uh, there was not just an indifference to Christian values. There was a positive hostility. And uh, Newbegin said that there were lots of reasons for this uh, decline, certainly the sexual revolution of the 1960s accelerated this, <clears throat> certainly um, the growing economic prosperity that Western nations experienced after the Second World War, prosperity often dulls faith. Uh, the political polarization between the left and the right as churches were lining up politically. People got alienated, certainly. The fact that Christians were not living vibrant Christian lives. Uh, certainly, there were uh, philosophical currents that undermined faith. But the major thing that Newbegin said over and over again, uh, stressed repeatedly, is that Christians needed to adopt the mindset of a missionary, that he had come back into a culture that was every bit as much non-Christian or anti-Christian as the culture that he went to in India. And he said, you know, uh, I'm just paraphrasing, but certainly if, if you went out to Egypt or you sent a family to your church, from your church in Egypt, to plant a new church. <clears throat> I'm just going to get a sip of water. And so if you sent a family from your church to Egypt to plant a church, they would know they were missionaries. And they would spend years learning Arabic and... Um, learning about how Egyptians thought about every aspect of life, how they thought about family and uh, how they thought about marriage and women and, and how to show honor to each other and, and what uh, they experienced as, as uh, dishonorable. You'd learn uh, to go deeper what the Egyptian worldview was, what they valued. And the problem that Newbegin uh, repeatedly talked about was the fact that we Christians in the West do not realize that we are in a missionary situation. We don't understand that fundamentally, if you're a pastor 
Or a Christian leader, you're a missionary, and our people don't understand that. And they haven't been trained how to read culture. And so we've inherited a set of tools and assumptions from our Christian history that no longer work, that are increasingly irrelevant. And we don't realize that sometimes our methods are not only irrelevant, but positively offensive to this larger non-Christian society. Uh, We don't spend years learning the new language. We don't spend years studying the thought forms or the values. If you were a missionary, you would do it. But we don't think of ourselves that way. And so the issue to use missionary language If we're going to participate in God's great plan for history, the issue is contextualization. Let me use a missionary word, contextualization. And contextualization is not giving people what they want to hear. Contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers about for the questions of life that they're asking in language and forms that they can comprehend, that even if they reject, they still resonate. They still resonate. The the answers were given still touches a deep chord within people. Contextualization means that missionaries understand how to express the gospel in a way that removes unnecessarily alienating uh, aspects to the culture. Without removing the offense of the cross, without removing the scandal of the cross, there are things that are unnecessarily alien and uh, make the gospel just unthinkable, uh, uh, not understandable. Uh, Contextualization means you wrestle with how can I make this message clear and attractive? Uh, How can I offer a message that connects to this culture and its deepest longings, but always confronts and always challenges? We are on this tightrope as we try to relate to postmodern UK. We're on a tightrope. And we know that there is a God element in culture. God has not just made us, uh, as a result of the fall, turned us over entirely to the demonic. There is a God element in culture that needs to be affirmed. There's also a demonic element in culture that needs to be confronted and challenged. And so a person who is contextualizing is in touch with this. You know, if we fail to adapt to the culture... In any way, we are irrelevant. And, you know, so many of the ways that, that in the West we do church have become largely irrelevant. What do I mean by irrelevant? Uh, a failure to contextualize. I mean, have you ever sat through a message that bored you to the point where you wanted to stick a pencil into your eye? I one day, uh, I, was, I was in a meeting sitting next to a friend as I listened <clears throat> to somebody, no joke, go through 36 ways to communicate. Very effective message. 36 ways. 
And when he was on number 17, I drew a picture of myself with my little curly hair. And I had a noose around my neck. And I was hanging, hanging from a tree branch. And I had a knife stuck in my heart. And a gun next to my head. And I wrote to my friend. I won't tell you who it is because you'll know the context. But I passed a note to a friend and I said, kill me now. Now, what was wrong with this message? Often we listen to messages that are doctrinally accurate. There's nothing untrue about what's being said. What is wrong with the message, the failure to contextualize means that the listener says to himself or herself, all that you say may be true and I don't give a rip. I don't care about what you're saying. It doesn't address anything that I care about. You haven't touched me in the least. It's a boring sermon because it doesn't enter the world of the listener. You haven't connected at all. Now, uh, that's an under-contextualized message. We can over-contextualize. We can so adapt the message that uh, we just become an echo of the culture. Sometimes we think, well, I'll just get rid of these secondary elements and only focus on what is essential. Harvey Kahn, a great theologian in the, in the United States, said, we have no right to uh, strip the gospel down and get rid of secondary elements in the Bible. We don't even know what's secondary. And often the things that we're tempted to scuttle are the very things that the culture most needs to hear. The things that raise the greatest offense are often the things that we most need to hear. So we need to learn how to present all biblical truth in a way that really connects. I love what Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, said. He said, when we contextualize faithfully and skillfully, we show people how the baseline cultural narrative of their society and the hopes of their hearts can only find resolution and fulfillment in Jesus. Listen, the things that you really want, whatever it is you're going after, your society may strongly value individualism and freedom, but the only way you're ever going to find real freedom and real, uh, uh, you know, the individual fulfillment of your life, you're only going to resolve that in Jesus your culture may value honor. The only way you're ever going to find real honor and freedom from shame is in Jesus. Your, your culture may value justice or it may value beauty or it may value uh, reason. It's only going to find its fulfillment in Jesus. We tie this gospel message to the larger cultural narrative. We say, here's the answer. Here's the way that this is resolved. We need churches in this movement who will train others in giving us the tools to understand this culture. Train us in the language. Train us in the practices. Train us in the way that this gospel message would not only be true, but relevant. Answering the deepest questions of the heart if we truly want to extend the gospel throughout the UK 
in Amsterdam, in the Nordic countries. We need folks to help us. You have in your midst, I believe, all that you need. Some of the folks need to be released to help train a con- folks in a contextualized gospel. What is the need of the hour? We, can, we must contextualize the need of the hour, our pastoral courage. Pastoral courage. I've counted several dozen times. I did a Bible study on this a few months ago. I read every text in the Bible where God says to somebody, do not be afraid. It's a daunting thing to think about how far the culture has drifted. God says to you, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Jeremiah, for I am with you and will rescue you. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. Do not be afraid, children of God. You are worth more than many sparrows. When the disciples saw Jesus approaching in the boat, walking on the water, they were frightened. But he said, it is I. Do not be afraid. Over and over again, the Lord gives this word of encouragement to his people. Do not be afraid. You see, we uh, pastors find ourselves fighting a war on two fronts. On the one hand, we have religious Goliaths, religious intimidators. And on the other hand, we have cultural Goliaths, cultural intimidators. The religious Goliaths are often in your church and they're threatening to leave if you don't, you know, uh, uh, preach the way they want you to preach and say what they want you to say. And uh, inside of every one of us is, is the, you know, the heart of a coward. Uh, they're going to take their ties with them. They're on our board. Uh, we've got to line up with the intimidator's view. And then there are the cultural Goliaths, uh, the world that says, we will punish you severely if you step out of line. And so we're facing a two-front war. And we pastors need to hear the message again. Do not be afraid. Our great need in this hour is pastoral courage. In the face of all the Goliaths, all that just is overwhelming, we are thoroughly inadequate. Do not be afraid. And uh, unfortunately, uh, if only our problems were outside of us, but they're inside of us, inside of us is the heart of a coward. The patron saint of many pastors is none other than Nicodemus. Nicodemus who believed in Jesus, who had a powerful position in the Sanhedrin. And yet, the three times that we read about Nicodemus in the Gospels, he he will not publicly identify uh, and and take on the religious Goliath of his day. He won't do it. You know, he is one of the few uh, Christians in the New Testament that has not been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church. He's one of the few. There is no Saint Nicodemus. And the reason is because he didn't exercise courage when he needed to. Uh, You know, brothers and sisters, pastoral courage is not a respecter of age. It's not just the young that need to take risk. Well, you're 20. You're not going to lose very much. Go plant a church. You're 30 years old. Your family is young. They'll adapt. You don't have much to lose. 
Go start something new. Courage is something that God urges on people regardless of age. I mean, you know, we think about young David facing Goliath. We go, well, there's a picture of courage. You know, a teenager, they're courageous. They're fearless. Uh, When we were in your 40s and 50s and 60s, you get to sit back and relax, and you're not called to any new fights. The, The portrait of Daniel in the lion's den is entirely false. If you've ever seen a painting of Daniel in the lion's den, he's always a teenager, or in his early 20s, he's a young man. But if you actually read the biblical account of Daniel in the lion's den, it's in Daniel chapter 6, it takes place really late in Daniel's life. He's probably about 90 years old. Really. And uh, he can barely see because he doesn't have any glasses. And he probably gums his food. And, and you know, he needs an afternoon nap. And, and he doesn't like to eat dinner past, say, four in the afternoon because... Because if he eats later, his tummy gets upset and he can't sleep and, and he can't take any spice anymore. It just doesn't agree with him. And, and, and he must be in bed at 8.30 or he gets very cranky. And, 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 that's, and God says, now I want you to exercise courage. Uh, and that's the call for, for all of us to step out and say, okay, what's the new thing? What's the new thing that God is saying to risk and stretch about? So let me close with this. I know I'm running a little over. Uh, Please bear with me. But uh, as we see our roles as participating in this great cosmic triumph of extending the kingdom and rescuing people, that, that Satan has to stand back and watch as ordinary men and women like us Take his possessions. And and the tools that we need, first of all, are contextualization. We've got to learn the new song that the culture is singing. We've got to understand it, and we have to learn how it finds its resolution in Christ. And that's a difficult task. uh, Because we've learned old lessons, we need to learn new lessons. We've got to see ourselves as missionaries. We must exercise pastoral courage My last call to you visionary leaders is to become again dangerous dreamers. To become again dangerous dreamers. The motto of the early Jesuits was magus, which in Latin means more. That was their motto, more. We do that in the vineyard. We're, We're their heirs. More, Lord. Give us more. Give us more. I want to see more converts. I love the testimony this morning. 75 converts. More, Lord. Next year, give us 100. More, God. More in my church. More people, Lord. More of your presence, not only in my church, but in other churches in our community. More, God. More of your presence. Give us not only our church and the other churches Give us our community. Oh, God, more. Don't just give us our community. Give us our region. More, God. Give us England. Give us Europe. More, God. We continually are saying, more, Lord. And the visionary leader is the dangerous dreamer. 
Let me close with a couple of thoughts. There was an old movie that came out when I was a little boy. It was called Lawrence of Arabia. And uh, Steven Spielberg said it was that movie that inspired him to make films. Because it was such a great movie. It was so amazing that he said it made him feel puny. And he said he still feels puny. It still feels small when he sees the story. What's the story of Lawrence of Arabia? Lawrence grew up, of course, in a Christian evangelical family. His, uh, one of his brothers became a missionary to China. Uh, uh, Second, became a teacher in India. Third, was a powerful speaker to young people at Christian camps. And then there was Lawrence, and Lawrence was always known as a dreamer. And he dreamed of a Middle East free of Turkish rule, where Arabs would rule themselves. And so Lawrence, who grows up as a Christian, leads a band of of Arabs against the Ottomans, throws them over, and then his dreams get unraveled in the back room of British politics and all of that. But Lawrence said something that, that really, really has struck me as I think about leadership. He said, all men dream, but not equally. Those who dream by night in the dusty recesses of their minds wake in the day to find it was vanity. But the dreamers of the day are dangerous men, for they may act their dreams with open eyes to make it possible. This I did. He said, dreamers in the day are dangerous. The Bible is filled with the story of dangerous women and men who dreamed in the day. The Josephs and Abrahams and Moseses, and Isaiahs, and Peters, and Paul, and oh, brothers and sisters, you will become a marked, dangerous person if you allow yourself to dream again. If you just say, God, give me dreams, fresh dreams of more, fresh dreams of more. My life is not done yet. Give us more. I grew up at a time where my political hero was Bobby Kennedy, Kennedy as a teenager. And, and, and Bobby Kennedy, he used to say, he said, you know, uh, most people see the world as it is and they ask why. I see what never was and I ask why not. Dangerous dreamers always say why not. Why not? Why not a hundred converts in our church in the next year? Why not? God could do it. Why not? Why not see people regularly healed, physically healed in our churches? Why not? Why not see kids out of gangs, brought into safe settings, you know, taught, built up, released to take jobs in our community? Why not? Why not see immigrants welcomed and brought to faith in Christ? Why not? Why not see a multicultural, multi-ethnic vineyard movement in the UK? Why not? Why not see a mosaic here? I mean, really, why not? Uh, Why not see a, a new generation of leaders taking over, passionate about the extension of the kingdom? Why not? And so, brothers and sisters, visionary leadership 
visionary leadership to embrace at the core of your being this hard task of being a missionary. You are missionaries whether you realize it or not. To, to uh, take courage and to dream dangerously. Would you stand?